We sang it, your love so deep. The love of God's the only secure foundation on which to build your life and base your eternity. This book tells us all about it. It's the scripture, it's the Bible. It is always true, it's always relevant, it is always useful. If it fails to be that for you today, I might be, I'm the one who's the culprit responsible for that. It won't be the scripture's fault. But I'm hoping that there is something for you in this book today that will remind you of God's love for you, to build you up, encourage you, strengthen you. Thanks for being here. We're continuing today in a series of messages that we've entitled, Every Story, His Name. And we're looking at different characters in the Bible, surveying their lives, but not really just to see what we can learn from their example, positively or negatively, though there is value in that. But what we're doing is, and it's an attempt to see how different Bible characters fit into the one overarching Bible story of redemption, to see God's greatness on display as he works out his master plan of rescue and salvation of a fallen humanity. The character under our consideration this morning may or may not be familiar to you. His name is Balaam. If you do know anything about him, the one detail that will stand out in your memory is the fact that he had a conversation with a donkey. Yes, a talking donkey. But what you're going to find out is there's so much more in the scripture than just that one detail. What I want to do is try to ask and answer the question, how do Balaam and his talking donkey fit into the overall Bible story? And we're going to look at some questions that I have and figure you might have the same questions and try to come to come up with some answers about what I consider, who I consider to be one of the Bible's most confusing and puzzling characters, this guy named Balaam. Now, we're going to see today that though the account of Balaam is recorded for us in the book of Numbers, and we're going to read a portion of it, the incident with Balaam is mentioned all throughout the scripture. In Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Nehemiah, by the prophet Micah, you come to the New Testament, he's mentioned in 2 Peter, Jude, and also Revelation. See, the thing with Balaam, the event with Balaam truly has a greater significance than at first meets the eye. You want to try to figure it out with me? So Numbers 22 is where we're going to start. If you want to open your Bible, Pew Bible, page 125, we do have to read some of the account from the book of Numbers. So let me just set it up for you a little bit while you're turning there. Numbers is not everyone's favorite book because it's filled with Numbers, it's not really always riveting material, although you're going to find the account of Balaam pretty interesting. The title for the book originally in, in, in Hebrew was In the Desert, which comes from the very first verse of the very first chapter of the book of Numbers uh, that says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the desert. In the desert is probably a pretty good title because the book of Numbers recounts for us the events of God's people Israel in the desert where they lived and wandered for 40 years after being freed from slavery in Egypt and before entering 40 years later the land that God had promised to them in the desert. So they, in the desert, they conquered some of the people groups that lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So all of the other surrounding kings and cities and people groups were getting freaked out, scared. So when we come to Numbers chapter 22, one particular king named Balak, who's the king of Moab, resorted to a different game plan. Before taking on the people of Israel in battle, he wants to hire a sorcerer 
to cast a curse on Israel and thereby gain an advantage over them. Lord God of Israel will not take this lying down. So we're going to see what happened. So we got to read a fairly significant portion of Numbers 22 and 23. And I'm going to put on my speedy reading voice and ask you to put on your speedy reading ears. Because we got to hear and see exactly what happened here. All right, so follow along silently. I'll read it out loud, starting with verse 1 of Numbers 22. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River, in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on them, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and that whoever you curse is cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely. And do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went to the Moabite officials. But God was very angry that he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. 
Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of the territory. Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied, but I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam went to Balak. Then Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath-Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep, gave some to Balaam and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to ba Bamoth Baal, and from there he could see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went off to a barren height. God met with him, and Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars, and on each altar I have offered a bull and a ram. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all the Moabite officials. Then Balaam spoke this, his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom the Lord has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced. From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves just one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or even number a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Balak said to Balaam, 
What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. He answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And you could continue reading the passage through the end of chapter 24, and you'll see that it happens two more times. They go to another spot where Balak hopes Balaam will curse Israel. It turns into a blessing. They go to another spot, repeat the same thing, and Balaam's curse turns into a blessing. What's going on with Balaam? I put together a couple of questions that I have, and I just kind of want to use a question-answer approach in in my outline, because I figure if I'm asking these questions, you probably are too. And we'll see if we can come to some answers. So the first question I want to address and hopefully answer is, who's this Balaam guy, and why is he such a puzzling character? First thing, really a talking donkey? Now, when you, when, I, when you think of a talking donkey, you probably, in your mind, go where my mind goes, Shrek. And I just want to get it off my chest. I can't stand those movies. The only character in those movies I like is the talking donkey. But in Balaam's case, he had one conversation with a donkey because God opened the donkey's mouth to keep Balaam from doing something stupid and to show Balaam who the real donkey was and it wasn't the donkey. Now, I had intended to to, to use an old English word for donkey there, but my wife cautioned me against that. (laughs) But don't dismiss the account of Balaam because a, a talking donkey strikes you of myth or fairy tale or folklore. I don't have any problem believing that God can open the mouth of a donkey if he wants to. I mean, if Genesis 1 and 2 is true, where God, the eternal God, brought the universe into existence with three words, let there be, then I don't have any problem with that same God entering into the world that he made, and with three words, let it speak, put words in a donkey's mouth. To me, it, it's, it's not an obstacle. I hope it's not for you either. But there are a few questions that are a little harder to come to terms with for me. Here's this one, Balaam. How is it that Balaam, he's not an Israelite, he's not part of God's people, appears to have a relationship with the one true God? What's up with that? He's not not from the nation of Israel. He's not one of God's chosen people. He lives far away from there. He appears to know the one true God and have a relationship of sorts with God, He appears to be a prophet of God. He appears to be a spokesman for God. I want us to remember that at this time, the nation of Israel, having just been recently released from slavery, was only beginning to become organized in their religion and their worship. That is, the office of prophet hasn't been set up yet. The role of priests was just beginning to come together. The tabernacle and religious worship of God had only recently been set in motion. And so as such, it's probably inaccurate to think of Balaam as a true prophet of God or as a devoted follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He wasn't. It's probably more accurate to consider Balaam more of a sorcerer or a magician who used his powers as a means of earning a living. 
and apparently had a pretty widespread reputation because Balak sends his messengers a long ways to track them down and to bring them in. But how did Balaam know the one true God? Why did God communicate with him? And I think that's a harder question. Of course, knowledge of the one true God was not limited to the people of Israel. Though they were God's chosen special ones through whom the Messiah would eventually come, God had told their ancestor Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations. And though Isaac was the son of promise and the nation of Israel was God's chosen people, Abraham had other children. There was uh, Ishmael. Then after the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, he remarried and had other children. And surely Abraham communicated to them knowledge of the one true God. But there's something else I want you to remember. The knowledge of... God's plan, though focused on the nation of Israel, the people through whom the Savior would eventually come, God's plan has always been a plan of worldwide redemption, that all peoples would come to a knowledge of the, of the Lord. The psalmist would later write, the heavens declare the glory of God. Their voice goes out to all the earth. The knowledge of the one true God is there for any who want to hear it. And see it. But for reasons that I can't explain, the one true God had allowed Balaam to know him, to communicate with him to some degree. But it's important to realize that Balaam's knowledge of God was more of a means to an end, his own financial gain. It's not so much that he was a prophet, he was all about the Prophet. Get it? Play on words. Prophet. Prophet. Doesn't it play out that way? He, he's, he's all concerned about the payoff. Now let's add another, another puzzling element to this and think about it with me for a little bit. It seems confusing when God forbids Balaam to go, but then later allows him to go. And then we wonder if God did allow him to go, why does he get angry and try to kill him after saying that he could go? Were you confused by that? By the way, I said it or when we were reading it? It's like if, if you said I could go, why then are you sending an angel with a flaming sword to kill me? That doesn't make sense. I'll suggest something that I think might be happening here. There's probably something we can all learn in this because when we are headstrong and doing what we're going to do, there's nothing going to get in our way or stop us from doing it. And sometimes we can convince ourselves that an open door must mean God's will. But the reason the door is open is because we've kicked it open. Even though we knew God didn't want us to do it. And sometimes God says, you know, the downside of this beautiful gift of a free will is that I'm going to step out of the way and let you do what you're going to do. And you'll reap the consequences of those choices. And so here's what I think. In spite of Balaam's ins insistence that he can only speak what God allows him to, his heart wants Balak's reward more than anything else. And he knows that that reward will only be his if he goes. He wants to go. And so now that I'm talking about what's going on in his heart, I think that brings up another and more significant thing that can be a little puzzling. Bal Balaam appears to get some things so right 
while getting other things so wrong. Every time Balaam says, I must speak only what God puts in my mouth, I want to cheer. Yes, that sounds so right, so loyal, so faithful, so devoted to God. He really gets it, doesn't he? He's a real man of God. Well, not so fast. I need us to remember those could be the words of a man of God, but think about it. After being rebuked by a talking donkey and have a life-threatening experience of an angel with a flaming sword who wants to kill you, you might find motivation to only speak what God puts in your mouth, right? So he appears outwardly to be doing and saying the right things, but inwardly it's not the case at all. And you know, Balaam will go down in history, in Israel's history, not as a man of God, but as one of their greatest enemies. And a few years later, after this incident, Israel, in fact, would put Balaam to death because of another detail about Balaam's story that's a little lesser known. You see, as, as soon as the account of Balaam's curses turning into blessings in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, chapter 25 opens up with a description of a tragedy. This is how the chapter 25 starts. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Moabites? Wait a minute. Aren't those people that Balak was in charge, who just hired Balaam to come? Ah, oh, those who invited them to the sacrifice of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. It'll be up to you to read the rest of that story on your own, but when it's all said and done, 24,000 Israelites are put to death by a plague as God's punishment for their unfaithfulness. And with whom did they commit this unfaithfulness? The people of Moab. The ones who had just hired Balaam to attempt to put a curse on them. Balak's people. How did this happen? You might be surprised to learn that Balaam put them up to this. He was the culprit. God may not have allowed him to curse Israel, but Balaam found a way to advise the Moabites on how to take down the Israelites. He advised them to seduce the Israelites into sexual immorality. You read about it in Numbers 31, verse 16. It explains it this way. They, speaking of the Moabite women, were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Balaam appears to get something so very right. But that's not the real Balaam. solidifying himself in this event as Israel's enemy. Sometime later, when God gives Moses his final instructions before he would die, those instructions were to take vengeance on the Midianites and the Moabites. Moses put together an army of 12,000 Israelites, and they went out and waged war against the Midianites and the Moabites. And we read this summary of that battle in Numbers 16, verse 8. It says, among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, 
and Rekah, the five kings of Midian. And then this note, they also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. You see, Balaam lost his life and would go down in Israel's history as one of their greatest enemies. But if you're really going to understand the significance of this Balaam incident, we have to listen to what the rest of the Bible writers say about him. So I want to pursue that in our second big question in our outline this morning. What was the error of Balaam? See, that phrase, the error of Balaam, comes from the book of Jude in the New Testament, written hundreds of years after the Balaam incident that we just read about in Numbers. Because like I said, the Balaam incident is discussed throughout the Bible. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy and Joshua. I went through this list already, didn't I? In Nehemiah, which prophet mentions him? Right, Micah. Then you come to the New Testament. Peter talks about him. Jude talks about him. Even Jesus talks about him in one of the... uh, One of the visions that John in the book of Revelation sees of Jesus, Jesus talks about Balaam, and you come away realizing that this Balaam incident is pretty significant, maybe more than it first meets the eye. The New Testament writers talk about the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, and the teaching of Balaam. Apparently, this incident has more relevance than we thought, even relevance down to the present day. Let's survey some of those texts together. I think we'll put them up on the screen. Moses recounts in the book of Deuteronomy this incident at the end of his life. He turns the reins over to Joshua. Joshua leads the people into the land, and in one of his final speeches, he also recounts the Balaam incident. This is what he says to them in Joshua 24. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. God speaking, but I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Centuries later, Nehemiah, following the captivity where God's people were in captivity for seven years, they come back to the land, to Jerusalem. Nehemiah helps them rebuild the wall, and he recounts for them what God had done. Nehemiah 13, 2 says, because they, speaking of the Moabites, had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. And he adds this commentary. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. You see, this incident is becoming a rallying point for the nation of Israel to rehearse God's faithfulness to them. Micah the prophet, he brought the Balaam incident to his listeners' attention. He said, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God's faithfulness is highlighted in these passages as they recount throughout their history what God did for them in the Balaam incident. And then you come to the New Testament and the New Testament writers refer to the Balaam incident and use it as a, to serve as a warning for individuals and for churches, telling them to stay on guard against false teachers and false teaching. 
So Peter, in 2 Peter 2.15, says this, describes false teachers this way. He says, they've left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. Jude had a similar description of these imposters who had infiltrated the church. He says, woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Balaam's being lumped together with Cain, with Korah. And if you're familiar with those guys and their stories, you'll realize Jude is not making a very complimentary association. Finally, from the mouth of Jesus himself, as recorded by John in the book of Revelation, a message to the church in Pergamum, and by extension to us as well, we're given this warning. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So having surveyed together the biblical material on Balaam, I want to ask, what is, so what is the error of Balaam? I think there are there's a couple of components that make up this error of Balaam. And the first I would say is this. He had a heart ruled by greed and the love of money. The prophet was all about the prophet. It were reminded of uh, Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1.6. He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Author of Hebrews picks up a similar theme. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because God said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Anything we can learn from this? You better believe it. Never in history has there been a people like us who at the same time have so much wealth, yet so little contentment. Balaam's error of greed and lust for money is a real and present danger. It was an idol for Balaam can be for us, too, if we're not careful. So we are given that warning. Here's a second uh, component to the era of Balaam, I think. He had a heart that was ruled by appearances and the opinions of others. His reputation was paramount. How he appeared in the eyes of others was a stronghold in his life, and we get a hint of this in his conversation with the donkey. Donkey asks, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? And to me, the humor in this whole incident is that Balaam is so enraged, so livid, so, so beside himself with fury that he answers as if talking to a donkey is the most normal thing in the whole world, right? What was his answer? You have made a fool of me. Aha, you see it? You've made me look like a fool. We get, a, we get a glimpse into that second idol that ruled his heart, how he appeared into the eyes of others, his reputation as a powerful person, his status as someone important. And that's a huge trap. That continues to the present day. And his subservience to that idol, to that reputation, blinded him to what mattered most. And in the end, it would cost him his life. It almost did on the road. 
And you know, in a real sense, the great irony is that here's a brute beast, a donkey, who turns out to have more sense, more perspective, more wisdom than the man who's so full of himself and his own reputation. His heart was ruled by appearances. Here's a a third uh, component of the era of Balaam. He was outwardly obedient, but inwardly rebellious. And this, to me, is one of the biggest tragedies because he knew God in a real sense, but he was not transformed or changed by it. I mentioned already how he looked pious every time he said, I can only speak what the Lord tells me. But this reality was not a true expression of his heart. He says it almost as an apology and certainly with a certain level of frustration. He could say the right things without any inward transformation through the truth. Now, Paul warned Timothy of people who had the right answers outwardly but were not authentic Christ followers. He described them as lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the form or appearance of godliness but denying its power. And he added, have nothing to do with such people. Like the Living Bible puts it so plainly, they will go to church, yes, but they won't really believe anything they hear. Don't be taken in by people like that. Fourth component to the error of Balaam has to include this, his cavalier attitude towards sexual sin. He advised the Moabites to entice Israel to sin through sexual immorality. He was unable to help Balak and the Moabites get at the Israelites by pronouncing a curse, so he suggested they try something else, sex. We couldn't bring them down with a curse. I think I know one way we can get at them. It's no wonder that the New Testament writers find the error of Balaam so relevant. And it's relevant for us as well. The error of Balaam always includes this indifference towards sexual sin, this cavalier attitude towards God's standards. Our culture's obsession with sex proves that the error of Balaam is alive and well, and we are part of our culture. This impacts us as well. The warning from the New Testament writers is well taken, and we would do well to heed it. We could talk more about that one. I want to go on to our third question that I hope to answer this morning. How's Balaam fit into the overall Bible story? I want to mention three ways that he fits in. The first one we've just been talking about is this. The error of Balaam, as we've just seen, persists as a clear and present danger to us all. So the New Testament writers, even hundreds of years later, after the Balaam incident, call individual believers and the church to be on guard against it. Jesus himself voiced his warning in his words to the church of Pergamum. Balaam serves as an example of false teaching, a warning against greed, and apostasy. His choices cost him his life. And the tragedy of tragedies is that his firsthand encounter with God was not enough to offset the idols of his heart, the idols of money, power, prestige, those strongholds that he would not relinquish. Second, Balaam fits in the overall Bible story. Now listen closely to this one. Balaam represents Satan's ongoing but failed attempts to undermine God's redemption, 
redemptive plan for Israel and the world. That's a mouthful. Listen again. Balaam represents Satan's ongoing but failed attempts to undermine God's plan of redemption and salvation. See, it's been this way from the beginning since the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived Eve. And it continues right down to today. But God's plans and purposes to redeem a lost humanity will not be thwarted by any means. Now, Balaam is one in a long line of opponents to God's plan of redemption. A long line that includes the serpent in the Garden of Eden, the Pharaoh in Egypt, Korah's rebellion against Moses in the desert, the evil Haman in the book of Esther who wanted to wipe out the Jews, King Herod who sought to kill the Christ child when Jesus was born, Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, But here's the cool thing. And this is the reason that that the nation of Israel always rehearsed the Balaam incident. God's purposes for his people will not be thwarted by any means. He will be faithful to his plans, faithful to his promises. God is on the throne and he always will be. Peter speaks of our adversary, the devil. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour we know there's an enemy but Jesus has defeated him Jesus said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it Um, Jesus assured us in the world you will have trouble but be of good cheer I have overcome the world to destroy the works of the devil Jesus told us was the reason he came into the world If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've not had your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, if you've not been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, then you are in a very precarious predicament. And the error of Balaam is going to do you in because you do not have a rock, a solid place, a secure fortress that only Jesus can provide. To be apart from Christ leaves you in a dangerous predicament because Jesus Christ has come into the world defeating sin and death and becoming a strong fortress against the devil's schemes and all his attempts to take you down. In Christ alone, there is security and safety and refuge from the devil's schemes. Here's a, here's a third thing, finally, that I wanted to share with you, how Balaam fits into the Bible, Bible story. Just as God's rescue of his people from Balaam's curse was based on God's love for his people, so our rescue through Jesus Christ is based on God's love of us. God's rescue of his people, despite Balaam's opposition, becomes a rallying point for the nation of Israel and a reminder of God's faithfulness. One of my favorite scriptures, and we surveyed a bunch of them, that recounts the Balaam incident is the one that comes from Deuteronomy 23, verses 4 and 5. I want you to to listen to it. So Moses is recounting this for the people of Israel. He says, for they, speaking of the Moabites, did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram Naharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing. 
because the Lord your God loves you. Isn't that amazing? God's, because of God's covenantal love for his people, not because of any inherent goodness in them, not because of any inherent goodness in us, but because of his great love for them, he turns the curse into a blessing. And that blessing is found in Jesus Christ ultimately because God loves you. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the Balaam incident stands as forever as a reminder of God's love for his people, a love that chose them to be his own, his own, a love that sent a savior, Jesus Christ, to die in their place, a love that says, I'm, I'm for you, I care about you, I will always be with you, I have a good and glorious purpose for you. He will be faithful to that purpose, to that plan, to that promise, because he loves you. And God's love for you is a secure fortress on which to build your life and to base your eternity. You know what one more cool thing about the Balaam story is? Not only did God turn Balaam's curse into a blessing, but that blessing also included a prediction of the coming Savior, Redeemer, King, who we know and identify as Jesus Christ. So if you read Balaam's final oracle that he would pronounce, the, the blessing, it includes some statements that can't help but remind us of Jesus Christ. So in Numbers 24, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. A ruler will come out of Israel. God, that, those are predictions of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Balaam, against his will and in spite of himself, prophesied the coming messianic ruler, Israel's future deliverer, and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Savior. God turned Balaam's curse into a blessing because God loves you. Let's pray. We take a moment, God, to pause after surveying your word to accept your love for us. Apart from which we have no secure fortress, apart from which we are vulnerable and adrift and destined for eternity apart from you, but in Christ, because of your love, we have salvation and forgiveness. May each of us today be able to bask in that love and to go forth from here building our lives on that foundation. For any who are here today and have not come to know you in a real way through Jesus Christ, that today would be a day of salvation. That you would shield them from the error of Balaam and give them a secure fortress in the one whom Balaam predicted the ruler who would rise out of Israel, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray today. Amen. Hey, you did a good job. I mean, that was a long survey through the entire Bible. We did it. I want to thank you for being part of this today. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.